Welcome to CFO 4.0, the future of finance. The CFO role is changing rapidly, moving from cost controller to strategic visionary. And with every change comes opportunity. We are here to help you take advantage of this transition to win at work, drive your career forwards and lead with confidence. Join Hannah Monroe, Managing Director of ITAS, a financial transformation consultancy, as she interviews key experts to give you real-world advice and guidance on how to transform your processes, people and data. Welcome to CFO 4.0, the future of finance. So hello everybody and welcome to this episode of CFO 4.0. A really interesting conversation today. I've actually got uh, David Foreman. He is founder of the Protura Group and managing director of the the venture arm of Protura. Um, So he is here to talk to us all about what VCs are looking for in a finance team and also in a CFO. So um, thank you very much for joining me, David. It's great to have you on the show. Hi. Brilliant. So tell us a little bit about your background. Where, how did you start and found Pratura um, and where has the company come from? Okay, so um, way, 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 way back when uh, I was, uh, I sort of, I guess I did the finance route. So I was law at university, accountancy at KPMG. I think I might well be the worst accountant that ever worked at KPMG. Uh, I then went into investment banking and worked there for a while. Uh, and sort of, I guess, during that time, I was advising private equity, mainly floating businesses part of the time. Uh, and then we took a sort of strategic direction within the within the investment bank to try and help our earlier stage uh, sort of businesses. And I was very, very lucky. I got to work with um, the likes of Matt Moulding at the Hut Group. So we raised the first institutional funding for the Hut Group. Uh, I failed to raise money for AO uh, sort of a few years before it floated for 1.3 billion, which suggests I might not be very good at my job. Uh, and I worked with a business called My Protein, which was eventually sold to uh, the Hut Group, but was intention- was originally intended to be a venture capital business, uh, backed business. and. Um, sort of, I guess, working with those incredible entrepreneurs, I was like, this is what I want to do in my life. I want to sort of back early stage founders and help them build businesses. And at the time in Manchester where I was working, uh, everything was about private equity and nothing was about VC. So myself and two co-founders decided to sod it, quit our jobs, set up ourselves and basically decided to create a VC business despite the fact we knew nothing about it and didn't know how we we're going to go about, about doing it. So that was kind of the beginning of Pratura. Uh, for eight years, we raised money on a deal-by-deal basis. We backed about 20 companies. We did the usual mix of some good, some bad, some terrible uh, investments. Uh, overall, the track record hung together. Um, and along the way, we also co-founded a number of businesses that are now part of the Pratura group. So we co-founded a business called Pratura Asset Finance, which lends to SMEs against plant machinery and kit. Um, and we created a business called Pratura Commercial Finance, which does invoice discounting, uh, as well as doing the early stage sort of investments into other businesses uh, in the venture capital arena. Um, and then in 2019, we decided to put all that together into one big shiny group, Pratura Group. Uh, and I set out to um, kind of build Pratura Ventures into the VC house. We wanted it to be one that was focused very much on helping founders post investment to build great businesses. Um, and we, you know, since then have kind of 
grown our funds. Um, and the Pretoria Group now is about 500 million of lending book and AUM, uh, 140 people, 30 million of revenue. Um, and I'm not really quite sure how that's kind of happened, but it just kind of has. Uh, so today, Pretoria Ventures is about 220 million of, of assets under management. We have 28 businesses in our portfolio. And as I say, the big focus for us is you know, VC is pretty simple. Find and back exceptional founders, help them build the best business they can. Um, and that's really it for VC. So um, that's what we spend our time focused on. So you've obviously, you've said that you've worked with some brilliant businesses, some not so great ones either. So, so <laughs> <laughs> when you, um, and I guess the question is, is like, what were you, what, now you've been through that, what would you look, what do you look for in a, in a, a finance arm of a, a business? What, what are the key sort of areas where you go, I must have that? I think the finance function is not the finance function will never be the reason to invest in a business, right? But the but the finance function can very much be the reason not to invest in a business. Um, and what we're looking for in the finance function really is, is, is it appropriate for the stage of the business you're at? And is it helping drive the business forward? So, you know, we invest from kind of, I guess, seed stage to series A. Um, some of the businesses we back have five people to 10 people in the business, you know, they're early stage there hundreds of thousands of revenue not millions of revenue and the and the finance function requirement there is very very different from the finance function requirement when you've got a business at 15 million of arr and backed by the likes of softbank such as a business we've backed called pki um or indeed some of the businesses we've you know we've backed previously and have gone on to float and have gone you know got to kind of 20 million of ebitda and 200 million of 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 a of a market cap so I think the first thing is the finance function has to be appropriate. Um, the second part really is by appropriate, it's kind of all about what function does the finance function perform? And that sounds a really odd thing to say, what function does the finance function perform? But you know, at the very basic level, you're counting the beans, you're making sure that you know where you are, you know where you stand, you've got some, some basic metrics in place and the business has a capability of operating and running and, and doing what you need to do. And if a VC invests, the money's not just going to be frittered away into silly places and it's not going to be lost and it's not, you know, it's not, it's going to be used for a good purpose. Later down the line, the finance function has to be way more than counting the beans. It has to be, you know, a great CFO. I was thinking before this podcast, what does a great CFO do? And to me, there's kind of three things. One is very much be a partner to the founder or CEO or CEO. So, you know, taking some of the load off the off the founder, helping with strategic direction, both where do we want to get to? But equally, I think a lot of it is about a business can be defined as much by what it doesn't do as what it does do. And then a leader and sort of ethical guardian within the business. The second thing I think a you know a really great CFO would be doing is very much looking forward, you know. Yes, the beans always need to be counted, uh, but you know you should be seeing round corners. You should be thinking if this, if we do this, then this will happen, or if this, then that. Uh, and then also being able to tell stories with data, so really be able to sort of drive where the business is going and tell the story of the business, but backed up by hard and fast um, sort of empirical data. 
And the final thing I think from a great CFO is you know being a financial operator, so an operator of the business with a financial head on. So you know know what is going on within the business in an intimate level of detail, probably an intimate level of detail that the founder might not have because they're looking at sort of higher level things. You know, working on things and automation make things scalable. Make you know every business starts off doing doing unscalable things. Let's try and make some of them really scalable and automated. And then being, probably the best way of describing it is the single source of truth, right? If you want to know what is going on, the right person to go to would be the CFO or the finance function to know that is definitively true. We've all seen businesses where you speak to the salespeople and they'll tell you one set of facts. You speak to operations, they'll tell you an entirely different set of facts. You speak to the CEO and probably it's an entirely different set of facts, probably with much bigger numbers. And like that's just frustrating because no one knows where they stand. And actually, you know, a great CFO finance function is like they are definitively the source of truth. And everything reconciles and everything hangs together and nothing kind of sits there and goes if that is true that can't be true you know everything makes sense relation we're from a sort of relationship perspective so you know things are interrelated or correlated if one thing is saying this and another thing saying that the finance function should be saying well that that can't be true or it looks odd, but here it is. This is why it works. So, I think there's, yeah, you know, there's a lot to be done for a great finance function, a great CFO. We at Seed and Series A stage do not expect that to happen. You know, to be there on day one. Um, but I think a hell of a lot of founders and CEOs in the early stage businesses completely underestimate what is possible with a great finance function. And in terms of, you mentioned, obviously, a finance function or, you know, the finance aspect can be a reason to walk away. What if you see, what are the things that would make you walk away? If you looked at the finance function and the, you know, the finance leadership in an organization, what would make you go, this isn't for us? I think a lot of the time it comes down to just not believing that the company knows where it is. So we're, you know, as a VC, we're internally optimistic, right? We're, we want to believe the great story. We want to believe that this company is going to go from here and it's going to go over there, right? But you need to know where you are. <laughs> and so often we see things where, you know, the financial model is obviously fantasy of the start down here and in five years' time, we're all going to be millionaires, Rodney, right? We're all going to be, you know, the revenue will, of course, it'll be 250 million quid. Of course it will. You know, yes, we're at, three three pound 80 of revenue today but in five years time we're going to be pulling down a billion of revenue whatever it might be and you know that's rubbish but you what you're hoping for is some of it is based on some some truths know something you know you know where you are you have some element of of sort of grounded in realism of what might a client pay for this what how many you know how many clients you have it's amazing how many times the sort of the plans of the business you start interrogating things and you're just like this this plan has no bearing to where you are today you know it's it's almost like this is a plan for a business that doesn't exist and here is the real story and the two just can't mesh like we're all expecting it to be highly ambitious and highly optimistic of what might happen from where we are but if you don't know where you are today how do you move that forward how do you 
you know, you can't plan for anything because you don't know where you are. Um, and that'd be the, that'd be a big reason. Another reason would be, you know, kind of, I guess the found it's not necessarily what's wrong with the finance function, but what's necessarily the position of the CEO and, and the, and the, and the management team, and the leadership team. Some people just do not and will not ever see the value of a great sort of finance function. You know, why would I spend money on people who count the beans? Why would I, why would I spend money? I want to spend money on sales and tech and dev. And reality is look at businesses that really scale very often, you know, not very often does that happen when you don't have a competent you know, finance function. You might not have the absolute world's best CFO in place, but you do need a you do need a very competent function. You need to know where you are. You need to have a source of truth. You need to know your metrics. And people who and some founders just don't believe that. And if that's the case fine i hope you build a great business but you probably won't do it with our money i think that's fair though isn't it because obviously uh, the financial investment piece you want to make sure you know if you it's really interesting listen to you say that if they don't know their numbers then of course you're not going to invest which makes absolute common sense but i can only imagine how many companies come forwards where those business models haven't been well thought through or been through a process yeah and it, yeah it's not that they haven't been well thought through it's just i think in the absence of a of a sort of someone who's saying, you know, come on, this is where we actually are. I think founders start to believe their own stories, right? They start to believe that they are doing this and this and this. And actually, the reality is they're not, you know. And I think there's just a lot. It gives you a great deal of comfort as an early stage investor if someone's got their shit together. And, you know, I say this as someone who, you know, at KPMG, I did, I was, I did audit and I was, a, that was sort of my only time of being an accountant. And I was frankly terrible at it. I nearly swore then to emphasize the point, but I'm not very good at it. Um, I don't see myself as an accountant. I don't see myself really as a finance person, but the training I've done and the sort of, and working with people in great businesses show me that for the right person, for the right you know, the right person in the finance team is massively, massively valuable and can be re a real part of how a business develops. And, you know, we've seen it in business in our portfolio where, you know, they've changed the CFO or they've brought in a CFO having only had to maybe a finance controller or a finance director or whatever it might be. And the business is almost transformed overnight. And I don't know whether it's was transformed overnight or whether, the CFO is just able to tell it in a way that is more compelling because they're using data to back it up. Whether it's the fact that you know the founder has now got a partner who can help them drive the business forward because the CFO is way more than just, as I say, look at finance and only that. But you know the introduction of a CFO can be as transformational as the as the introduction of a great CRO or a great CTO or whatever else, you know, what other other function of COO that you might add to the C-suite, right? That is, and I think some founders just don't believe that. And then when they go out to recruit, they don't know what they're looking for because they don't know what great looks like. Yeah, it's, it's a hard piece, isn't it? Like you say, not knowing what, what good looks like in that the CFO role. So you mentioned- That's really hard. Yeah. And, and measuring it if you've not got a finance background is really challenging. I think it's even, you know, because it, 
accounting, especially I think for founders, can seem a little bit scary. Uh, the the black, the dark art of finance. Scary, scary slash boring yeah. slash the person who tells them the shit they don't really want to know. Yeah, and there is um, <laughs> there is an art to being a CFA to a founder, I suspect, in terms of diploma skill, skills and parenting, maybe. So um, yeah, there's definitely a way of bringing across that information because very often the information isn't exactly what you hope it would be right you hope you're growing quicker you hope that you're closing the the cash burn gap quicker than you are you hope that you know when you win a client that you immediately get that revenue which might not be the case or suddenly you know a lot of finance information is inherently not what you'd, you'd want it to be more you want revenue to be higher you want you know your growth rate to be quicker you want the impact of a new client win to happen quicker than it does you want all these things to just be quicker or better or higher and unfortunately reality is there's not the case so you know you want to be you there is a skill in how you present that information yeah absolutely and obviously you mentioned that you're working with companies all the way from c to series a what does what do you want to see at each of those stages for you to be willing to invest like what is it that you're you're looking to see in place from a finance perspective or from a business perspective purely at this stage from a finance perspective i think at the seed stage you're looking for some you know, for competency, you're looking for something you can rely on, some truths that you can kind of, you know, you can see and touch and feel. And an acknowledgement that there are some things that we, we do not know because we do not know them. So we don't know for sure what the end state cost of acquisition will be. We don't know for sure exactly what the lifetime value of a contract will be. We don't know, you know, we don't know at this stage that if we bring in one salesperson, they're going to do this and then that'll happen. At later stages, and you know, we invest at seed and series A and then obviously trying to take them beyond that. So later stages, you're looking for, you know, I, I think probably the best way for, for what we're looking for is a, you know, is a it's almost like a formula for how this business will will scale. So if we do this, if we bring in five new salespeople, that'll take them three months to ramp up to full full capacity. At full capacity, they should be doing this. Our cost of acquisition is this. Our lifetime value is this. We can show show how the value, you know, how the how the book of business. This is in a SaaS business, but you know, apply it to anything. Um, you know, this is how the book of business will look. This is how the shape of the business will go. That's what happened. That's what will happen to cash flow. If we equally, if we took on ten people rather than five, we know the cash, you know, the cash dip will be higher, but the end, the exit rate will be will be this, and it's it's. It's all those things, and it's like the, what you're looking for is that you've got confidence that the management team can run the business without making decisions that will eventually make them run into a brick wall. You know, like I think I think the reason we started talking to one of my posts on LinkedIn, and I looked back at it, and one of the things I said a great CFO does is stop the founder running into a brick wall, because founders' natural tendency, and probably mine, is let's go quicker, let's go faster, let's do more. Um, you know, don't take on five people, take on 10. Don't take on, you know, we can do this project and then we can do this project at the same time. And yes, there's cash to go to that and there's cash to go to that. And then suddenly you find that, you know, lo and behold, you know, the world is now telling us that loads of people have made bad decisions. You know, how much layoffs are going on in tech businesses where a week before they were still hiring? 
Like, you know, I, I will not understand that. I appreciate that things change quickly and people, you know, Ukraine and the sort of inflation cost of living crisis and the, you know, the tightening of the VC market, at the top end has happened pretty quickly. But I will say, you know, where, where businesses are hiring one week and firing 20% of the staff the next week, something's gone wrong. Yeah, there's a lack of foresight. <laughs> so something's got something's gone wrong because you don't like you don't suddenly decide to fire twenty percent of your workforce. Well, I hope you don't overnight. Yeah. So either they've they've not communicated that shift, they've not understood it. Yeah. Something's yeah, something's gone wrong, right? And yeah, we're not we're not at that stage where you've got thousands of people in in businesses, but you know, I just think that that's something that a CFO should be doing a finance function should be doing is looking around the corners i say if we do this then this will happen you know that element of understanding this is the acceptable amount of investment we can make we all want the growth we all want the end state to be quicker and faster and bigger and better but within the constraints we have today we can only do this because otherwise yeah if we take on that 10 people rather than the five people we get too close to the close to the bottom and you know what it doesn't take a lot to go wrong at that point you know we might have supportive vcs but they take a time to get you know to to be putting more money in or if we want to take on 10 people let's go and have the preemptive conversation with the vc and say we need we need more money or we need to go and do this because that's what we're going to do you know that's what a great cfo does because the natural inclination of a founder is bigger faster quicker more growth more growth more growth you know bet the farm type stuff and we're all about big bets in vc but there is an element of let's at least stack some of the odds in our favor yeah you know there is um yeah big bets is great but there's also a lot of big bangs especially at the moment um in the the current world hey google what's the best accounting software for my business give it a couple of years and i bet you she'll be able to answer you pretty accurately But for now, it's still one of the few questions Google can't give you an answer for. But we can. Take our free quiz and find out which Sage product is the right fit for your business. Just head to itassolutions.co.uk. So so talking of um, the current environment, tell us a little bit about what you're seeing in the VC market at the moment, you know, because there's a lot of volatility, isn't there? Yeah. So what we're seeing is lots of high profile things that you know, everyone's read about, you know, the the soft banks, the Tiger Globals, the, you know, the Kazoos, the, I don't know, Klarna. Uh, Klarna is the biggest probably exam, example of just something that was valued at a crazy number and is still valued at a crazy number, but it's a lot smaller crazy number than it used to be. Um, and that's what gets the media attention. I think what we're seeing is, you know, VCs at the top end, the growth VCs, the Sequoias, the the you know the Tiger, the SoftBank, Insight, probably being a little bit more circumspect. I think there'll be a period of reflection which says, you know what, twenty twenty one at the top of VC where you're paying. You know, I think I saw something from A sixteen Z or um, which was you know it was regular for a twenty million dollar ARR business to be valued at two billion. That's nuts. So I think a lot of people look back at 2021 and go, clearly that was insane. And people who've made a 
made a lot of big bets in that market. I'm not sure how good their returns will be. But in the real world of VC in the UK, you know, it's affected things, but it's not massively affected things. Valuations are a little bit lower today. Expectations from founders are a little bit lower than they would be. I suspect round sizes will probably be similar size or maybe even larger, but expected to last longer because people don't want to be fundraising in the middle of 2023. Whereas, you know, in very good times, people are prepared to take more risky bets around, well, we'll fund it for a year because you know what, it'll grow. And then in a year's time, we'll be able to go and raise more money because it's grown. I suspect people are average, you know, VCs are out there and we'll generally want to have two years worth of runway rather than one year's worth of runway because you can't guarantee the funding in a year's time. But for every massive story of Klarna being worth six billion today and forty-six billion last year, that's not replicated all the way down the food chain. We're at the pretty early stage. We're in Manchester. We're focused on backing founders in the north of England predominantly, and we're a bit insulated from that. We've never paid. We've never been like paying silly, silly valuations for something that manifestly didn't deserve it. You know, and we're not. We're not massively changing our strategy today. We're trying to still, you know, I see that the, the current market as being an opportunity to to continue to invest, to accumulate assets. You know, we're in the growing funds and accumulate, accumulating assets phase of our business. And, you know, that's what we intend to do. So I think that was an incredibly long-winded way of saying the press makes a lot of something because those stories are interesting in and of themselves, but that's not necessarily the entire VC yeah. market. Yeah, and, and it sounds like there's different levels even within that VC market as well. Massively. Yeah, massively. At the early stage, you you know, I just don't think people were doing those silly sort of 100x ARR deals. That's just ridiculous. Um, and therefore, I think you're within a tighter tolerance. Um you know, and for every now and again, you'll have seen last year, you know, businesses that didn't deserve it getting an amazing exit or an amazing, you know, IPO or a SPAC exit or something like that. And that's great and fair play to them. Um, but I think the world's just kind of returned to normal. If you drew a line in, if you drew a line from 2019, sort of 2018 to 20, 2017, 2018, 2019, ignored what happened in 2020 and 2021. You'd be kind of where you expect to be in 2022. It just so happens that we had a massive spike and bubble in 2020 and 2021, and that's come off again. And it's because it was never really justified. Yeah, it was a short-term spike rather than it being a drop now necessarily. Yeah, it's, it's a drop now, but only relative to the only relative to the nuts situation of 2021. <laughs> that's a really nice way to put it. Um, and then in terms of. It, I, out of interest, has what you look for changed over the last sort of 12, even last six months, given the market? No, um, not really. I think we're constantly, yeah, we're an early stage VC. We're building our business. We're growing rapidly ourselves. We're refining what we do and we're always trying to learn and be better at what we do. But fundamentally, no, what we're looking for is the same today as it was in 2021, is the same as it was in 2020. You know, I don't think we categorize ourselves as unicorn chasing. Um, so, you know, not every business we back, in fact, I suspect quite, you know, a small proportion will be gone to become unicorns. That's not 
what we're trying to do. We're trying to back early stage founders who have a reasonable chance or a good chance of creating a great business. If that ends up stopping and it's worth 20 million or 30 million or 50 million or 100 million, that's okay. Uh, we should have priced that in at the beginning. Um, but we're not sat here saying every single deal has to be, you know, we put the money in and, you know, next year it has to be a unicorn. So it's kind of, it's just not affected us massively, I don't think. Um, I wish I had kind of a, you know, a more interesting and retrospective answer that said, you know, yeah, it's massively changed everything because the world's changed. But the reality is not the case. Um, I don't think we were crazy before this year and i'm hoping we're not crazy this year yeah no and i guess it's it's your philosophy on investing it sounds like it's pretty grounded in fact in reality which is interesting i'm a pretty pragmatic northerner right so like i'm an optimistic pragmatic northerner who probably at one point in in his life might have been an accountant um so uh, yeah it's not massively changed um you know I still get super excited by backing great founders doing amazing things. It's the best job in the world for, you know, I think VC is the best job in the world because you get to see, you know, you get to sort of participate and hopefully play a role in helping founders build great businesses. Um, And therefore we're going to carry on doing exactly that. And talking of being a northerner, so it's always an interesting, so, you know, I'm based near Chester, so I kind of bridge, I've got one foot in Wales, one foot near Manchester. So I'm somewhere in the middle. Let's say, honestly, if we, if we back to business in, the, in that region, it's definitely <laughs> anything outside London. Anything outside London is northern. Uh, so how is, yeah. We, we back to, we back to business in Nottingham, which got rebranded as northern. <laughs> <laughs> That's not quite, yeah. I'm not sure. I'm not, not sure, sure you can get that. away with that one. But how, out of in, Oh, oh we did. Oh, God. Um, how, how, does the, how does the funding compare, like London versus Northern? Is, is the Northern get starting to get their fair share, do you think, of the, the VC market? Uh, the North is getting better. It's not getting its fair share. It's probably the easiest way of thinking about it. Um, so you're just taking Manchester to the market. I've sort of worked in all my life. Um, Manchester's always had sort of a great number of, fantastic private equity firms um so sort of mid-market private equity massive amount of, of sort of private equity money in in, the, in manchester in the north of england vc for some reason has always been a london thing pretty much throughout the uk um there aren't many vc funds if any there are a few headquartered outside of london the vast vast majority and i reckon it would be greater than 90 percent of vc funds are are sort of at least located or focused on on London. Um, and that means that founders outside of London have a more difficult task than they should have. Um, you know, there's great businesses being created and founded and scaled in, in the north of England. Um, and they've had to fight a bit harder to get funding. You know, it's, it's the same, but different to, you know, female founders have had to fight a bit harder to get funding. And the stats for female VC, female founded VC backed businesses is dreadful. Um, same for people from, you know, ethnic minorities. Manchester's in, in no way the same, same, same sort of level of disparity, but the North, North does not get its fair share of, of VC dollars. VC dollars are concentrated in London, backing businesses founded and scaled in London, predominantly by 
um, white males. That's just the way the world, the landscape is. It needs to change. No, I couldn't agree with you more. I remember when I first, obviously coming into a tech business, when I was in my early 20s, I was all, you know, very often one of the few females in the room. Um, and whilst I've seen a big improvement in in tech generally, there's a massive push. It's, it's, it's amazing how bad it was back then. I don't think, when I reflect, I realize how bad it was. It's incredible. Um, you know, the industries I've worked in, investment banking and now VC, incredible the amount of old boys network that, that exists the amount that it is male dominated you know when i first joined an investment bank and this is you know it's dreadful to think this and it's dreadful to think that i didn't even think anything of it the only females working there were in admin sport yeah uh, horrendous right but you don't think about it right i i i just and you just assume that that is normal but it you know, it shouldn't be the norm. And I think that's the, that's the worst thing. Yeah. Back in the day, you didn't think of it. Yeah. didn't think anything of it. Um, I now would think very much of it. And one of the things that we're, you know, very sort of keen to do within Pratura is make sure that that, some of that imbalance is, is rectified. So, you know, 20% of the founders we backed female, um, not happened because we've said, you know, we're going to, we want to back more and more females. It's happened because we've opened up the, yeah, we've effectively tried to remove our inherent inherent bias and make sure anyone who applies to us gets treated on the merits of the business, not on the gender of the founder. Um, similarly, we've you know we've recruited a hell of a lot of people into our investment team. So I think as of the latest person who joined us, I think we're more than fifty percent or fifty percent female within our investment team. You know, that's something we have worked on, um, and that's something that's important to us. Um, because I just think anything where there is an imbalance is just, it doesn't feel right to me. Uh, and I think there's an opportunity to do things differently. It's part of the reason why we focus on backing founders in the North of England. There just isn't enough VC dollars going this way. You can look at that across a couple of things, you know, morally it's the right thing to do, ethically it's the right thing to do, but equally it's an opportunity because if there's less sort of people looking to find those exceptional founders in the North, Hopefully, we can back more and more of them, and then they can go and do great things. If we can, you know, buy locally and sell nationally and internationally, to use a very sort of uh, colloquial phrase, hopefully, there's a valuation arbitrage in that. Absolutely, you got you guys win. You have more more opportunities, I guess, to speak to founders, more good founders, and then hopefully, you get to pick the cream of the the crop. It's very. It's very saturated in London. And then in terms, I guess, how much pressure do you put on the organizations that you work with to encourage diversity? Is that a conversation that you have? Because obviously you talked about founders, but, you know, does that come up at all in terms of how they how they develop and how they grow? Is diversity a key conversation? It's a conversation. Um, it's not, I wouldn't say it's the key conversation because do you know what we find? I think as a VC, you kind of end up backing people who have share a similar worldview to yourself. And so naturally we find, you know, a lot of the portfolio businesses, diversity is absolutely critical to what they do. The founders think it's very important, you know, as a, a thing for them to focus on as they're building the business. So it's not, we're trying to help founders build great businesses. We're not here to tell people how to do their job. Um, but the happy coincidence is that we not we have a natural affinity for people who 
generally want to look at things like this, who want to make the world better. We have backed a number of sort of businesses that are tech for goods. You know, we've backed founders who I was speaking to one of our founders the other day, and I think they, they worked out that within their office, there was something like 20 odd nationalities and 40 languages spoken. It's just like, that's awesome. You know, that's just, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was a, it was a, a big number of nationalities and an even bigger number of, you know, of languages. Um, and I think, yeah, we've just naturally found that that's, they're the kind of, kind of people we want to work with. And, you know, we've long had the view that I think we call it the colloquially no dickhead policy, which is a, a kind of interesting way of saying what we want to do is we want to work with people who we want to work with, who we like, who we have an interesting, you know, a, a shared worldview of what's right and what's wrong. And what that means is we're going to be a great fit for certain founders and we're not going to be a great fit for other founders. And that's perfectly okay. Doesn't mean anything about what the, where those business will get to, but we want to back people who we want to spend time with and, and people we want to spend time with generally care about these things. And therefore it's not something we have to have a big conversation about. It just is a is part of the normal conversation that's yeah that's really interesting i, I love that whole new ticket policy I, life's <laughs> life's just too that short needs to go on a mug that is definitely a muggable <laughs> quote <laughs> yeah like life is just too short to deal with that oh, right? yeah. um that's one thing i have that is one thing i've learned you know we've and i think one thing for founders and you know cfos anybody you know anybody who's listening to this right just don't put up with them if there's dickheads, just don't put with them. No matter how good they are, just don't put with them. Because the the knock on effect of kind of the brilliant dickhead is just is just is is massive. That will apply to CFOs who are working with a founder. If they don't get on, go and be a CFO somewhere else. Like if you've got a person in the team who's not the they can go and work somewhere else. Like it just it's it's life is far too short to deal with it. I've I made that mistake as I was young, when I was younger of putting up with stuff and hiring people on their CV and what you think they can achieve for you. The reality is it's never worth it. No, I, I, I can genuinely say that. And I, I don't hire pe- people that I wouldn't want to personally recommend to a, a friend or a family member. That's kind of my role. And it and it seems to it works. Yeah, that sounds like that. That sounds like the more PC way of saying no dickheads. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm really glad we don't have a rating on this podcast. That's all I have to say. <laughs> uh, you would not be. So there was a podcast I went on the other day that was that had to put on explicit explicit uh, notice because I'd I'd sworn far too many times. So I think we're doing well. I've not sworn. Yeah, time, I would so. say that that's probably the worst word you've come out with so far. So we're doing all right. So. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I can't promise that'll last. Brilliant. Uh, well, well, we'll keep going then, and hopefully uh, steer away from anything more uh, more dramatic, should we say? So, one one interesting point you made there was about obviously CFOs and founders. So, for you, what is a sign of a healthy CFO and founder relationship? What does it look like? It looks like a partnership, but one that is based on open and transparent communication, right? So. The CFO should be able to say, I don't think you're right about this because of this or this or that. Similarly, the CEO should be able to challenge the CFO and say, it's great, I hear you all, I hear all of that stuff, but I'm either going to do this or we think I think we should do this. It should be a healthy relationship. It should be one where, you know, the yin and yang of it all is that the 
the combination is better than each one on their own. And I think, you know, a great relationship there is where you, and one thing you can kind of see when you're talking to them and sort of looking at them from a VC perspective, you know, there's a lot of talk of we and, you know, and the group and the team and we're doing this and you feel there's a real unity between the CFO and the CEO. You know, you don't ask the CEO and he answers it one way and then the CFO jumps in and says, well, what, what he means or she means is, is this and it's very like, you know, a very different answer. Um, so I think that, they should be able to have their internal discussion where it is, you know, frank exchange of views and respect both sides of the coin. When they are, but when a decision is made, they should be marching forward together, not kind of having different agendas or, you know, we've even seen it where there's subtle point scoring between, you know, between the CEO and CFO of, you know, and I don't think it's the case that one of them wants the other to fail, but I think the other, but I think they've not, they've obviously not resolved their differences of opinion. It's kind of you have your you have your differences of opinion if that's what you need. You make a decision. It could be one person's decision. It could be a compromise. It could be the other person's decision. But once you've made it, you get on board and you try and execute that to the best of your, best of your ability. Um, and I think. That's where a great relationship is made. Where it's not, you see kind of, and you do sometimes see this, there's almost a fight between finance and everyone else or between finance and sales or whatever it is. Because, and when that happens, you kind of get into this position where finance spends all their time trying to prove they're right because they have the data and everyone else tries to spend their time proving that they're wrong because they're looking at the data wrong or they're looking at, they're not looking commercially or they're not, you know, they're not thinking strategically. Those are all the things that are used to beat finance people around the head, right? You guys not, you're not commercial enough. You're not strategic enough. You're not optimistic enough. You're not growth focused enough. You know, we've even seen a little bit with politics now with Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak, you know, very much a case of, you know, all the stuff that was yesterday around, you know, love the treasury but you know they're getting it wrong that's a that's a really bad example of oh that's a really good example of a bad relationship and you see it in companies all the time and a great one would be where everyone's marching in complete alignment to what they're trying to achieve knowing that in private between themselves you know between the smt or between you know, the x the exec board or whatever it is disagreement is absolutely allowed and should be encouraged and should be you know everyone's viewpoint should be heard so one of the the posts that actually asked you know in, caught my eye and i think was one of the reasons i asked on the podcast david was about the whole um no doesn't always mean no conversation and i found that really interesting because there is a uh, a feeling isn't there like once you get a rejection you don't want don't necessarily want to go to the same place and experience that so can you just give us some context around that yeah okay um so i actually posted quite a lot about this because i think contextualizing a no from anybody or contextualizing a no from vc is really important because it feels like the end of the world and the reality is it's not you know so i think for people who are going through that process um you know i think it helps firstly to understand why a vc says no and what the maths are right so if you think VC's entire job pretty much is to say no. You know, we see we're a tiny little VC in the 
in the in the scheme of VC, we are tiny, right? And that's, we're hoping to be bigger, but we're tiny right now. Yeah, we saw three billion of funding opportunities last year in 2021. We see 200 a month. We invest in about one deal, one thing, one new deal a month, right? So 200 goes to one. I think the actual stats are about 0.5% of what we look at, we invest in. So from, from most conversations, we're going to say no thousands of times a year. And I think when people get that no, I think it's really important to understand that A, we have to say no to so many doesn't mean it's not a good business, doesn't mean it's not a good opportunity. It just means it's not probably the the best fit we can see that fits our fund thesis and what we're trying to invest in. That's the first thing. The second thing is we'll get loads of those no decisions wrong and businesses that we've said no to will go on and be awesome and create massive returns. And you know, I promise you, we all have, and I definitely have, the shadow portfolio of those things that I either said no to and have gone on to do great things or that or that chose a different funder, a different VC house, and have gone on to do great things, right? So the this, the second thing for people who get told no, really important to understand this is it does not mean anything about the business or that that means there's anything wrong with the business or that you know, we're right, we're not. We're just people who are trying to do our job, which is to take a big number of opportunities and turn them into a few number of opportunities that we invest in, you know, hopefully picking exceptional founders to back and then helping them build great businesses. So that's the, those are the first things. And the second thing then, once you've kind of accepted that, you know what, a no from a VC means nothing in the, in the sort of, in the history of the business, a no from Pratura Ventures, a no from any VC means frankly nothing. The other thing to remember is it's a no now, but it doesn't mean that it's forever a no. So, we, you know, one of the things we turn, we've just recently invested in the Modern Milkman, which is a great business that in the pandemic has gone from pretty much zero revenue to about 50 million of revenue in the case, in the space of two years. Phenomenal. We said no right at the beginning, and that now looks like a terrible decision. We've now reinvested it or we've now invested in them because now it feels right to invest in them you know and we're very lucky to be able to be part of that because it's a, obviously a you know a fantastic story but there are plenty of businesses where we've looked at it you know in 2019 or 2020 and it wasn't right for us in 2021 and 2022 it's right for us it's at the right stage it's, it's proved a proved a few things you know We've got more money now to invest than we did in 2019, so we can do more deals. You know, one, so th- there's lots of reasons why it might be a no today, but actually, what is important to understand is if you can have a gr- if you have a great experience where you feel like there's a connection between the VC and the and the and the CEO, the founder, the CFO, whatever it might be, you can revisit that. It's not a no forever. We don't have a list that says we've said no once. That's it, black, black, blacklisted, never talk to them ever again. You know, and I don't think founders should, but it feels like they, it feels that way. And I think part of that is there's a, there seems to be a trend at the moment where everyone should, everyone should get lots and lots of feedback. And if you, if you apply to a, v, you know, get funding from a VC, they should give you massively detailed feedback. And the reality is, a lot of times it's a gut feel as to why you might not invest. But because everyone's desperate for feedback, VCs spend a lot of time writing things about what's wrong with the business. 
to justify why they've said no. When the reality is they've just said no, because right now it doesn't feel like the best thing we can invest our money into. Doesn't mean there's anything wrong with a business. Doesn't mean it's a business we would never invest in. Doesn't mean anything other than the decision point today, we have decided to say no. That could be because we're currently absolutely rammed full of other opportunities that we're really excited about. Or it could be that they're a smidgen too early or a smidgen too late or or it just doesn't quite fit the investment thesis for the fund or it doesn't make a great portfolio sort of construction for the fund where you've got good diversification. We might have been looking at a business that's very, very similar to that business at that time and you pick one and you go down that route. There's so many reasons, but most VC feedback focuses on what's wrong with the business and and that gives founders the wrong impression that there is anything wrong with their business. It's just a case of this right now, today, this VC is not going to invest in this business. That's it. End of story. That's all it is. It's a decision point at a moment in time, not a, we will never, ever go near you ever again, you know, in the future because you're terrible and we hate you. It's not that. It's just today we won't, we're not, we're not going to. So I think there's lots of, there's a whole, you know, a whole thing around sort of no's from VCs, but the the important point from from founders, I think, is that it's not necessarily because there's anything wrong with the business. It's not because the business is uninvestable, and it's not a no that lasts forever. It's a no that lasts for a short period of time. So that's you know um, that's obviously a really important part of you know having persistence is obviously key um and finding the right vc from what you're saying is really key so just to finish up what are your top tips for cfos out there that are listening to this and going right well how do i find the right vc for us as a as an organization what have you got any top tips that you can share yeah obviously the first thing to do is go to protoraventures.com and see if you <laughs> see see if we might be the right one <laughs> Uh, that's wow. the first. That's the that's the first thing to say. Um, I think it is just about fit, right? And it. I think with people who are looking for funding, and if you are in that position today, there's a temptation to just throw mud against walls. Like if you if you knock on a thousand doors, you know someone will say yes. Type approach, and I see lots of bullshit on v- on LinkedIn about you know the next no is just one closer to a yes and all that absolute bullshit like it is nonsense right the best way to raise money for a from a from a founder and a cfo if you're in that journey find a number of vcs who definitively categorically invest in people who in companies that look like your company not you know, if you're raising half a million quid don't go to sequoia they won't invest half a million quid, right? If you're investing, if you're looking for 200 grand, don't go to Protura Ventures because we are minimum check is a million pounds. Equally, if you're looking for 10 million quid, probably don't go to Protura Ventures because a maximum we can do is three, right? It Find 20 VCs who definitively, categorically invest in things that look like what you're trying to build. Build a proper pipeline process for going to speak to those people apply in the way they want you to apply and this is why people get pissed off with application process because they're trying to apply to a thousand companies to a thousand vcs right apply to the 20 in the way they want you to do it so if they want 
I think warm intros are bullshit, but if that's what they want, find it. Don't just blank, don't carpet bomb them by sending their deck to, you know, the partners of the firm on LinkedIn, because that isn't the best way of getting to a VC. No one says what I want is loads of stuff in my LinkedIn inbox, because believe me, all that means is you're sat in amongst tons of people trying to sell you something. So, you know, don't find the right VCs, approach it in a methodical, planned way. Um, and then when you get the opportunity to speak to those people, build relationships, tell your story in a compelling way. Don't just read your slide out to them because we've all read the slides. Don't try to baffle them with science. Don't try and tell them that you're going to be a unicorn for no, you know, like that's not interesting. What's interesting is what are you trying to build? Why is that great? Why do people need it? If that is the case, you may well go on to become a unicorn, but saying I'm building a unicorn, well, great. Like who cares? You're probably not, and that's not interesting because it's just a statement. I could say I'm building a unicorn. I'm not, but I could because it's just a, it's just a bunch of words, right? Um, so find 20, 25 VCs who definitively do what you're trying to do, who invest the right amount of money that what you're trying to raise. Go and tell them your story in the most compelling way you can. That's interesting. That's you know story led. That's telling people why you're doing it and what's really important to you and what you think you can achieve and why people want it. And out of that, I would like to think that a few people will be interested. Maybe all twenty five will be. Maybe only one. But only one to or two to do the round, right? So, and then work with them to try and make the round as, as efficient and fair and equitable as you possibly can there's tons of stuff like not to do in vc fundraising one of them is go to everybody or carpet bomb people on linkedin it just doesn't work no one's in no one it's just not the way to do it and and in terms of um how you find those they find and profile those vcs is there a is there a directory that people should be looking at, or how do you how do you figure out? There isn't a there's not one directory I can talk to and say this is this is the definitive list. Um, there's things like Landscape BC, which you know will have a list of of things like that, which you know is interesting. I think the best way is to look round and say right who people things like sifted things like uktn will talk about the deals that have been done you know there's there's awards there's 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 ways of means of getting a rough crude list together and then the other way of looking at it is say right who do i know that look who's raised a fund a raised around that looks a little bit like what i'm trying to do go and find out who their backers are i mean i think again people are looking for kind of you know this definitive list that makes it really really easy but Finding venture capital shouldn't be that easy. It shouldn't be like, here's my list, I send it to 20 people and then you know, two months later, money lands in my account, right? It's difficult because you're talking about asking people to buy a part of your company for millions of pounds on the hope that you go and build a great business. It, it kind of has to be a bit difficult and you kind of have to put a bit of work into it. And anyone who thinks it should be a walk in the park is probably not living in, in the real world. So... Is there a list? No, not really. Um, but I don't think it would take you more than an hour of Googling to find, you know, the people who would invest in seed and series A or series B or series C. Once you get up the food chain as well, to be fair, 
it becomes really obvious because your VCs, you'll probably have had VCs at Series A and they'll know all the people who are at Series C and D. So the really difficult one is seed and pre-seed and Series A, right? They're the, they're the difficult ones because there's just more op- options and no one there to guide you. So the first VC round should be really difficult, is likely to be the most difficult. The next round thereafter is likely to be a bit easier and the round thereafter is a bit easier. But yeah, I don't think it's, don't think it would take you very long to do, you know, a couple of hours of Googling and you'd have a list of 50, which you can go and whittle down. And, you know, every VC has a portfolio page on their website. So go and look at those portfolio companies and go, does that look like what I'm trying to do? You know, if, if you go to a VC's website and all they seem to back is direct to consumer brands and you're building a B2B SaaS business, they're probably not going to invest in you because their, their investment thesis is about backing D2C brands. If you go to a portfolio company, you know, web, a web page of a VC and their portfolio is all, you know, uh, sustainability opportunities, climate tech, and you're building a supercar business, they're not going to invest in you. Like it, it's quite, I think maybe, maybe this is going to be a bit sort of controversial, but I just think there's so much bullshit written about VC. It's almost like it's this mythical art of mystical people who can see the future. And it's just not, it's a bunch of people who have raised some capital and want to invest in great founders who are going to build great businesses. It's really simple, but most of them have a view of what a great founder and a great business looks like because you can't just go to an LP or an investor and say, please give me money. I'm a VC. I want to be able to invest in every type of business and every type of founder in every single con- vertical because then no one will do that. So it just, it, it, and most VCs want everyone to know about them. So it's not like we're hiding, is it? Like, one of my jobs is to go and tell people about Procure Ventures and what we invest in, which for the benefit of the people who are listening, seed to series A, 1 million to 3 million investment into generally tech and health. Like my job is to go and tell as many people as we possibly can about what we do. And every VC is doing the same. So it's not, it's not a deep and mystical art. We're trying to find as many people who might be looking, who might be looking for funding, who who sort of are looking for that range of funding, and then we're trying to pick the best ones out of that funnel. And if I can make the funnel bigger, great. There's a greater chance of finding great founders in a bigger pipeline than a smaller pipeline. And I think every VC is doing that. So people are saying, like, oh, "I don't know how to find VCs. How do you find anything? Google it. Google. <laughs> Google. Read articles. Go on LinkedIn." Uh, go on Twitter, look at people who look a little bit like you and f- see who back them. Go on Sifted, go on UKTN. It's not that hard. So you've almost stolen <laughs> my thunder my next question. Because if what people want to know about what, you know, about Futura Ventures, where do they find it? So just, just for, if anyone didn't catch it earlier, how do they find out about you and about Futura Ventures? FuturaVentures.com um, is our website. Follow me on LinkedIn. So David Foreman, um, I generally talk about stuff that's going on in VC land. And I think if you follow us and our LinkedIn and things like that, then you'd get a pretty good sense of who we are and what we're trying to be. Um, I think what we're really about is we're just trying to be really pragmatic and simple about what VC is because it isn't what people write about. It's way simpler. We do not have a 
you know, we do not have a, a crystal ball that we can see the future. We're trying to do really simple things, find and back exceptional founders, help them build the best business they can. Everything else will take care of itself. Love that. Well, thank you so much, David. It's been amazing. Um, and some ama- some brilliant tips, right? And I, I apologize for running slightly over. Normally, I say that these, these sessions are normally 40 minutes, but we've gone over and it's been well worth it. So thank you so much for, for joining me today. And I really appreciate the time. No, thank you. Really enjoyed it. Thanks very much. 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 So I always find it really hard to explain to people why they should choose ITAS as their financial transformation or Sage partner. So rather than me tell you how awesome we are, I'm going to let our customers do it. So we decided to go with ITAS because when we were looking for a partner, we felt that they not only took the time to understand our business and they knew the needs of everyone on the team or everyone that would be using the system, but they also were very transparent in kind of what they could do, what they couldn't do. And prior to having us, you know, sign anything or make any agreements, they held meetings with us to walk them through our processes and our business so that they really understood everything that would need to be done and give give us realistic timelines as well. And another thing was because we were so new and we didn't have a current system going, we were looking for something that we could implement rather quickly, but also do it correctly. And we felt that ITAS would be able to do achieve both of those in terms of, yeah, understanding our business and, and implementing it how we wanted it, but also doing it in our rather quick timeline.